0: Outside the box with Jeff Conine. And now we have our first guest, one of the 97 World Series team members with the Marlins. It's Rob Nen. Of course, Jeff Conine here as well. I have a good feeling I'm going to guess this jersey correct this time around. It looks like it's a layup, but this Rob. It's a
1: layup, bro. Come it's on. a
0: layup. Rob, thanks for taking the time to hop on. Really excited to talk to you about your career and everything in baseball that you've been able to do. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So we always start with me guessing the jersey, and I, I'm, I've been a guy that does really try to brush up and remember history of baseball because baseball cards have always been really something that I've been passionate about, old throwback cards, whatever it may be. I've been doing terribly uh, with guessing the jerseys, so I'm really happy that we have you on, Rob, because I'm going to guess that it's a Rob Nen jersey that Jeff is rocking right now. Nope. No. Are you kidding me? So you're, no, you're making it, it is, harder it on is. purpose. No, it is. Oh, thank it goodness. <laughs> Last time he had himself, he put it, he wore his own Jersey. And oh, wow. I was like, there's no way it's Jeff. There's no way he's wearing himself, but boom. Oh, there's no name on the back either. So what's the significance nope. of 31, Rob? Uh, any, any backstory there on. No, no, there was nothing. It was just, it, it, you know, the numbers just kept
2: coming down the farther I got in spring training every year. You know, I think, I think my first big league camp was probably 80 or 90s and then it just kind of kind of kept coming down and, and that was the first uh, jersey I got when I was with, um, you know, San Francisco, or not San Francisco, with Texas. And it just kind of carried over from there.
0: And what does the jersey say? There's always a personal note. I see two, Jeff. Did Did Rob write anything exciting or creative or was it I more wish. of your typical I mean, have a great summary? Most yeah.
1: boring inscription I have. It's like, uh, <laughs> thanks for a
0: great friendship. Yeah, that's that's some... Middle school yearbook type of thing there. I know, right? Dig a little it's not deeper. Like, uh, thanks
1: for showing me the way in the big leagues. You know, you're the greatest mentor ever or anything yeah. like that. It's just
2: hey, I'm generic. a man of few words. I'm a man pretty of generic. few words. I'm a man of few words, Mr. Conine. You know that. Yes, I do. Hey, you should have got me to sign that when I had a few cocktails with me. That would have been <laughs> a year.
1: That would have been a much better inscription. Probably it wouldn't have been be able to read it because you barely, barely read it now. Well, listen, it's not easy to write on those things.
0: It isn't, you're right. So Jeff's got a whole just closet full. I mean, it's a, it's a man cave full of those jerseys. And the cool part about it is that it's it's mostly dominated by players who had, you know, a good impression on him, guys that he became friends with through his time playing. And obviously, you're our first guest. Uh, Niner said, we got to get Rob on as is, is one of our first guests. So obviously, you guys have the tie in with the 97 team. And that is an unbelievable season. We've talked about it a lot already, given that it was an expansion franchise in 93. Just a few years later, they win the World Series. Uh, Could you talk about what it was like for you breaking in with the new team? Because you obviously weren't drafted by the Marlins. You get traded over there. Uh, did you kind of have an idea of what you were going into?
2: Well, I came over in 93. Those guys traded for me in 93. So I kind of had a chance to, I went from Texas over to Florida and I had a chance to kind of, kind of figure some things out in the big leagues. I wasn't quite ready for a big league career at that point. I was, I had some injuries and stuff, the minor leagues and kind of made the team out of, out of big league camp, kind of out of options and all that stuff. So <clears throat> getting traded over the middle of July or middle of 93, uh, you know, gave me an opportunity to learn, learn how to get people out in the big leagues, learn how to watch guys and, and go about their business and all that stuff. So that was early on. But as we kind of got towards that 97 season and they started building and doing what they did, like the, the pieces we already had and the pieces they went out and got, you know we definitely thought we we had a chance to do something special
1: so when that that offseason you know Wayne Zynga said uh basically Dave Dabrowski gave him free reign to put together whatever he needed to whatever he wanted to and he started moving pieces around and brought in some big names and I know you know Rob and I were like almost daily uh leading up to spring training like holy crap we just got Moises Alou you know holy crap we just got Bayou Bonita I mean He started bringing in some big name pieces and we were excited because we grew up with nothing. You know, Rob said he comes in the middle of 93 and 93 was absolutely zero expectations. And, you know, we started building from there. We got better each year, but we were never really close to being a championship caliber team until uh, Wayne said, let's do it in 97. And uh, Dave went out and did it. I I always mix up 97 and 93, which, of course,
0: I have it in my notes right now because it's the three big years. 93, 97, and 03 are the only relevant years, really, for me, Marlins-wise. I really don't remember 03 as I'm 24 years old, and my memory goes back to about 2005 which has just been nothing but no playoff uh, appearances since then. So I haven't really gotten to see, I'd do anything to go back and watch you guys play in 97 in that big uh, baseball stadium that was packed to the brims. I mean, football stadium, excuse me, that was packed to the brims, which was just absolutely unbelievable. What was it like though, joining then the brand new expansion team? I know Jeff has talked about this a lot and how the expectations were almost nothing. We talk about the big expectations in 97, but 93, uh, it's almost one of those, just you're meeting everybody. It's a new organization. Uh, can, can you explain a little bit of what that was like for you as well, coming in from another organization?
2: Yeah, it was definitely a ner- little bit nerve wracking coming from Texas where I kind of came to the minor league system. I kind of knew the coaches. I kind of knew everybody there, you know, making that team that year, 93, <clears throat> you know, you kind of, you know, we were a bunch around a bunch of stars. It was the, the Nolan Ryans and the Kevin Browns and the Kenny Rogers and Pudge Rodriguez's and Rafael Palmeros and all that stuff. And, and it was one of those things that, you know, you, you kind of come to the minor league system and you, and you kind of watch those games. You kind of see all these guys, these stars that, that were out there. And it's something that, you know, you, you finally make it there. And you're kind of, you know, you're just, you're sitting there just kind of watching stuff and, and trying to figure out how to fit in and not try to cause any problems. <clears throat> you know, and then you get traded to Florida where it's a bunch of guys that were, were starting their careers off and, and trying to make names to get to that point where, you were a Raphael Parmero or, or a Pudge Rodriguez or a Kenny Rogers, something like that. So we were all kind of in the same position for the most part, you know, some were a little farther along, some were, we're just kind of getting started. And, uh,
1: so you know, what they're the saying depth. we're all scrubs. That's what no, 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 that's <laughs> not
2: true. Mr. Conine. Don't be get sensitive on me now, but <laughs> you know, right? I mean, we are all, we're all expansion draft guys or, or the expansion draft and some guys traded over. And, and for me, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me with the fact that it gave me an opportunity to be in the big leagues and learn how, learn how to go about my business from the, from the Conines and the Brian Harveys and, and Arrestos Estradas and all these guys that have been around for a while They were a lot older than me. And it was one of those things that, that uh, it, it, was just, it was great to be able to, to learn and not have the pressure of contending or not having the pressure of, of really knowing we're going to get to the playoffs that year or even the next year.
0: And so, Jeff, you mentioned earlier that you were kind of helping him break in. Rob mentioned that as well. Uh, What was it like seeing an up-and-coming Rob Nen as he broke into the big leagues?
1: Uh, I was glad he was on my team, I will say that much. Um, You know, because Rob threw 100 when 100 really meant something back then. He didn't really know where he was going early on, which was uh, the scary part for the opposing players. That's what made him great. (laughs) <laughs> that was great. Made him great because they were they were scared he's going to decapitate them at any at any moment. Um, but uh, when was when was the spring training? I actually had to face you. Remember, we were supposed to play. We were supposed to play uh, in Memphis. We were supposed to play the Kansas City Royals in Memphis at their Double A stadium. We got there and they had just put in a new drainage system in the outfield, and it was not. Both the GMs were out there like we cannot put a major league team, two major league teams in this field. There was literally like sand. Uh, troughs over the entire outfield exposed sand that were still growing in and they sold 10,000 tickets to watch this <sighs> exhibition game so everybody said they canceled the game so we got out of there early we had to go to LA we we're opening up in LA and we had a we had like a scrimmage game we had a scrimmage game at Dodger Stadium yeah uh, Rene Latchman put on the uh, umpires gear he was umpiring uh the game and I had to face Mr. Nan over there I'm like damn i don't think I'm going to like this very much. And I'll tell you what, man, that is a scary proposition to watch his toe tap and fastball come in at, at 99 to hundred. That was, uh, it was a, one of the most unique pitches you're ever going to see. And, uh, you know, the slider that he threw, everyone thought it was a fork ball. And even my teammates, when I was, when we were facing the giants in in San Francisco, they're like, damn, that fork. I'm like, dude, it's not a fork ball. It's a slider. And he's like, no, it's not. It drops down like a forkball. Mike. I'm, I'm telling you, I played with the guy. It's not a forkball. It's a slider. And didn't but they call it, it the Terminator? A- Is that
0: that's what it was called, right? I, I've read that that was the. Did nickname. You give your pitch a name, seriously? I didn't do did it. Did you the do giants,
2: that? The Come on, man. You nice me I didn't do wow. it.
0: Rob, Rob leaked, leaked it. it.
2: I he didn't le- do it. It wasn't me. But it was something that uh, that kind of stuck a little bit. But yeah, I don't know what you. Now that you say that, I completely.
1: I think it forgot was. forgot
2: that, that we had that. So it was what? 95, 6, 95 maybe?
1: or 96, maybe. Yeah.
2: And it was, uh, I, I do remember last getting back there in the, in the full umpire uniform, get back there calling. We were laughing and joking. It, it, it was yeah, fun. after
1: the, after the first pitch, I think I swung and it was in the dirt. He goes, and he starts laughing at me. My manager's like, he goes, good luck, man. You got no chance right now. So oh, you chase the terminator. Oh, yeah. You're right.
0: <laughs> yeah. so what was it like to have a pitch name that i think that's one of the cooler things ever if you don't do it yourself naming it the terminator but also i doubt you have a baseball handy i should have given you a heads up on that but i would love to know how in the world you gripped a pitch that was a slider that somehow was mistaken for a splitter forkball
2: <laughs> well first of all like I say, stuff yeah slippery, no slippery stick. stuff that's, that's the next
0: topic too yeah,
2: let's talk about that later um, no, but it, for me, it, it was it, there was a guy on the team, Richie Lewis, who had a great curveball. You know, he was you know a little shorter guy and, and had a good, pretty good fastball and, and a great curveball. And when I first got the big leagues, when I was starting, um, you know, I basically had a, a fastball, a very very below average changeup, and probably even more below average curveball. And so for me, I was trying to go out with one pitch, trying to show you know, here's the horrible curveball. Let's go back to the fastball. One off season, I think it was going into the 94 season. Richie lived down there and he started showing me, you know, I said, he goes, Hey, I'll show you how to throw a curveball. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So we started kind of working on it that off season. it kind of developed into from his, his kind of bigger curveball to, to my slider, which was more of a downward, you know, kind of, my pitch is, is what it just kind of developed into what i grew and and if it wasn't for the richies and, and guys like that that, that that showed me along the way how to do it I, I would never have been where i was at before i ended up being so for me it was it was it was a slider, curveball turn slider turn kind of funky pitch i don't know <laughs>
1: In other words, he doesn't even know how he threw it. He just gripped it and threw a no, lot of it.
2: No, oh, I, I, I would throw it, you know, kind of straight-armed a little bit and just kind of pull down, almost like you're pulling a light shade down or, or, a, or a, you know, uh, drapes. You know, I'd pull it down, and that would get that arc and that angle. I could get it to go a little bit left, a little bit down, or even get the back up where I wanted to. So, for me, it wasn't the, the typical over-the-top curveball. It was just to get it out front and yank down as hard as I could.
1: Yeah, but you're Start talking it's, with, it's a 91 or 92. That's what hour I was going to ask. It's yeah. not like a curveball, 76 mile an hour, yeah. you know, a looper. This thing is a 92 mile an hour bottom dropout type pitch. It,
2: it was definitely, it was definitely a, a a power slider or whatever you want to call it, you know, but there was days that I would, I it would, I would feel good. I thought too hard at 92 or 93, it would almost just be a, a flat nothing. And so for me, to work at 88 to, to 91 was probably the best range for me. Um, but, you know, with, with my arm strength that I had back then and, and the slider just kind of went together kind of worked really well.
0: And when you're a pitcher that, especially back then, as Jeff mentioned, that can run it up to triple digits almost or touch triple digits when it was not very common at all, when you have that breaking pitch as well, did you really have a specific plan hitter to hitter, or did you just have the confidence that if those two pitches are in the strike zone, uh, you'll be able to, to take that guy down, uh, whether you hit your spot or not?
2: Well, I, I think, I think you go into an inning with the, with or into a game having kind of a, a little bit of a, of a. Knowing what you want to do. You know, if I'm facing a Jeff Conine, for me, it all, dep- it, it all depended on. Slider in, uh, Slide in the dirt, slider in the dirt, slider in the dirt. He'll, he'll swing out. Yeah, he'll swing at it. No, but for but for, seriously though, no. I mean, for me, it was it was the score dictated kind of the way I pitched. If I had a home run hitter like Jeff or or McGuire or Bonds or somebody come up and it was a one run game, it was it was pitched a little differently than than maybe a two run lead with with nobody on and I could be a little more aggressive and you know try to have them maybe make a mistake on their side. You know, if it was a one run game. I couldn't go on there just throwing fastballs because all these guys in the big was, trust me, I tried it my first year. I backed up third base more than probably anybody in the big one. So for me, it was, if I had the opportunity to to be maybe a little more aggressive with the fastball and kind of get ahead and have those guys, you know, swing early and, and try to try to hit, have them hit my pitch. Then that's what I would do. If it was a one run game guy on second base, I came to the game or a home run hitter, everything kind of changed a little bit as the, as the kind of game progressed or that inning progressed.
0: And what's your plan then if you're attacking somebody like a Jeff Conan at the plate,
1: slider in the dirt, slider in the dirt, slider in the dirt. What? <laughs> no, I, at it.
2: Listen, Jeff is an old school guy. Jeff would, Jeff is a guy that definitely wanted to try to drive the ball to both sides of the field gap, you know, f- for the most part and all that stuff, you know, yank a home run if, if, if it's in the right spot. For me, it would be, you know, hard fastballs way, make him try to go after something that, that he doesn't feel comfortable with, not saying going the other way. But as, as a power hitter like he was, you know, he was looking to drive the ball the gap. So if I could try to down away where he had to kind of go out and pull out and kind of maybe didn't have this quiet power, I'd probably start that way. But once I got ahead, it would be slider, 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 slider. Slider in the
1: dirt, slider in the dirt, <laughs> slider
0: in the dirt. <laughs> Is it, was, that, was that the report on you, Jeff?
1: Slider in the dirt, slider in the dirt, yeah. That's it. That's all no, you saw. No, no. If you saw your slider, that's what it. A lot of them ended up in the dirt, but yeah. the swings and misses were unbelievable because you swear it's a fastball coming in. Yeah. I swear it's a fastball, and then all of a sudden, just because the rotation was so odd, yeah. like a lot of sliders, you know, you see the dot, and you can see it, you know, that that downward and, and cross break, you know, six eight inches. His ball was like a you couldn't really pick up seams, so it was just like a spinning pitch, but it looked like a fastball rotation when it's coming in. And then by the time you decide to swing, it was in the dirt.
0: So you were two guys here that, that made adjustments. Jeff went from starting pitcher to hitter. Uh, you went from the more traditional move of starting pitcher to bullpen. Uh, I've talked to Jeff a lot about going from being a pitcher, his entire pretty much career going into it. And then, uh, Really settling in as a hitter. That's an unbelievable adjustment in itself. We've seen guys like Trevor Hoffman make the move from a, what was it? Catcher shortstop Shortstop. to, to closer. Yeah. The, the move from pitcher to, or starting pitcher, excuse me, to, to closers or reliever is one of the more common moves we see, but it typically is something that a lot of guys that have really good stuff seem to settle into pretty well. And it's exactly what happened with you as you were one of the best closers in the game for a really big stretch there. Uh, what was that adjustment like for you? What, what was easier, I guess, for you moving into that closer role from a starter uh, other than maybe just not having, as, is it not really as much having pressure to throw strikes for a duration of a game? Like what's the big difference from starter to closer?
2: Well, for me, it was, it was, uh, it was health issues and me trying to, you know, me going out with my mechanics, which weren't that great. And as hard as I threw, I you know I couldn't go out and throw 110 pitches or 100 pitches. I, you know, I, I might eventually my arm would just blow up and and I'd have issues with all that stuff. So for me it was it was a health you know reason going to that to the to the bullpen. You know the other thing is I always thought I would still be a, a starter in the big leagues and you know in the in the bullpen Brian Harvey ends up you know was the closer that year. Jeremy Hernandez was was setting up. Brian Harvey got hurt. Jeremy Hernandez kind of went into that role. I was throwing the ball well early on in the game, they started kind of moving me back towards that spot. So I kind of fell into a spot where a couple of guys got hurt. You know, then Jeremy got hurt. So I kind of was the next guy in the line. But for me, I love the opportunity to be able to be in a, a chance to be in every game. You know, as a starter, you throw up your fifth day, you go out there and get your, your brains beat in, you can't get anybody out. And you got four days to think about it. Closing-wise, or being in the bullpen, you have a chance to be in every win, every game, every night. And for me, that's what I, that's what I loved about it. I mean, there was days that you'd blow a game and it was a bad game, you know, walk walking guys all over the place and all that stuff. You'd have to come back the next day and you'd have to kind of get that loss out of your mind or that bad game on your mind, which was for me the hardest part. But with that being said, I still enjoyed having a chance out every day to be a part of the game. And that was, for me, that was the best thing.
0: And that's something we talked about a little bit with the MVP award, because we were talking about whether a starting pitcher it's happened in the past, but whether a starting pitcher should win the MVP and uh, Jeff's argument a little bit against it was that they don't, they don't play every day. Right. And and they have their own award as well. Uh, When it comes to reliever, Dennis Eckersley's won an MVP right way back. And uh, they technically do throw more frequently, but it is only one inning a game. But, I feel like closers don't usually get a fair shot at Cy Young. I know closers have their own award as well. I want to hear what your thoughts are on a closer in the Cy Young conversation, or do they really just get their closer award? And then I want to hear Jeff's thoughts on that as well. Well, I definitely it's going think to be it's two a, different
1: like, thoughts, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, no, 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 no I'm <laughs> these with pictures,
1: man. They always <laughs> <laughs> the
2: MVP thing. I, I definitely think that's a hard hard thing for a, a starter to get. I mean, even if you go out and win 20 or 30 games, it's still, you know, a fraction of the season, you know, maybe being a closer, maybe being an MVP, if you had an unbelievable year, didn't give up runs and where it was, you know, won a bunch of that stuff or saved a bunch of the games, that could be a little bit different. I still don't agree with it. I still think it's, it's for the, for the hitters and guys that play every day that, that, that have an opportunity to, 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 to change that game every single day. And, and I think Jeff probably didn't think I was going to say that, but no, with that I, said, not. I, I do think that there's an opportunity for a closer because he does have a chance to, you know, maybe be in 75 games and, and maybe, you know, winning eight or 10 games and saving 40 or 50 games. So there's a little bit of that. And maybe I'm a little biased because that that's where Matt starting wise, I, I don't agree with it quite as much, um, but that's just my take.
1: Yeah, because I remember back, um, I wasn't really a baseball fan growing up, but my little league team was the Yankees. So I kind of followed the Yankees when I was young. And Don Mattingly's season that he had, I think in 1985, was it? You know, he hits three, whatever, 359 with like 45 home runs and 145 RBIs. And they gave the MVP to Roger Clemens that year. And I thought that was the biggest travesty I'd ever in my limited baseball following knowledge, I mean, I tried to hit like Don Mattingly. I just thought that that was the, one of the greatest seasons ever put together. And they gave it to a pitcher, man. I was I was bitter from that day on about the whole uh, MVP going to a pitcher. I always thought that Mattingly should have won that award that year. For sure, he deserved it. Uh, but they gave it to Clemens. And um, I still feel that way. I still feel that a position player should win the MVP. 352,
0: 394, 573 slash line that year with 31 homers and great defense from Don Mattingly. Yeah. Uh, pretty darn good season. The ironic thing too, as we talk about the Cy Young award, Rob, two people, two people voted for you as the first place uh, for the Cy Young award, the year you dominated in 98, correct? And yes. that means two people voted for you to win the Cy Young over Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin and Randy Johnson, uh, which is, which is pretty cool uh, as, as a closer and, and that season, you were utterly dominant that was the year after you won the world series so i want to talk about that season in a moment but you were able to help the marlins win that world series in 97 and you guys both played a huge part in that first title for my or for florida jeez for florida and they were able to close it out against a really good indians team what was that whole experience like I know Jeff has talked about it a little bit, but I'd love to hear your thoughts and then Jeff can add on because I can't imagine fourth year of a franchise. I know it's technically a small market, but at the end of the day, it's South Florida, it's Miami. It's if, if it's happening, if there's something good going on, people are going to show up and they did. What was that whole atmosphere like in South Florida as a brand new team making this miracle run?
2: You know, it was definitely opening. I mean, we, we, you know, we, we went out that year, we got a bunch of great guys, Moises and Bobby and, all these guys that, that came in here and, and and going into that season, I think we all thought we had a chance, but we never really I think we believed that really we did, but you look at with all the great teams out there, it was something that that we you know was still going to be an uphill battle you know it was the first year we got all these guys trying to mesh together, trying to get all these guys together you know and and once we kind of got going and got in the playoffs and, and kind of going where we did, things just start clicking it was every night it was somebody different i mean from from jeff to, to Dalton to to uh, Moises, to, to Devo, to, to Kevin Sheffield Brown, too.
1: Sheffield, Sheffield was on that team.
2: <laughs> oh, I mean, it was it was it was stacked. I mean, it was amazing. And then the farther we got in the playoffs, the more our our confidence got up. And and, and the farther you know, this is true. This is real. We're in the, we're in the midst of this whole thing. And I think when when we when we beat Atlanta at their you know in that round. I think everybody. I mean, the confidence was nobody could beat us at that point. I mean, you always want that confidence going into it, and I think we did. But I think we truly believed as we got farther along. It was it was amazing.
1: You know, I thought there was a telltale sign in the beginning of that season in spring training. We had some ridiculous record in spring training. Do you remember that? It was like twenty six yeah. and five or yeah. twenty four and four or something like every single game we were winning. That could always be a curse too. <laughs> yeah, the well, the B squad was going out there winning too. Every time it was like, you guys win? Yeah, we won. Did you win? Yeah, we won. And it was a joke after a while, but we just felt like we had something really special early on. And like you said, a lot of times it's a curse. So you see these small market teams, they do awesome in spring training and they suck during the season. And vice versa, the big guys will just have a mediocre spring training but dominate the regular season. But we took that confidence into the season because we got along so well as a team and wrote it all the way. And it, like Rob said, it's, it was a different guy every night, doing the job, getting the job done. We did things together as a team. Um, you know, and the talk about some people don't believe in team chemistry and, and clubhouse chemistry. Uh, we are here to tell you that does, that does not ring true because that team was special. Uh, like the 03 team was special. And there was something different about those teams that won the World Series than the other teams that we played on that didn't. They just uh, – you could feel it in the clubhouse. It's just a different feeling.
2: Hey, do you remember – do you remember that, Dan? I think it was Cincinnati, and I don't really remember the, the day – we just got Dalton a couple of days before that night or whatever. And, and we must have lost a game or two or whatever, and he had that little meeting underneath uh, – I think it was Cincinnati. And, and the way he talked and the way he came out and talked about how – it's one of the best teams he's ever been on, and he's never seen so many guys that, that were, they were doing what they were doing and this and that. And I, and I really kind of thought that was a little bit of a, of a starting point to where we all kind of started kind of meshing even more than we were before. Because like you like to say, we had a great spring training. We had a great year leading up to that. But at that point, I think it really kind of went forward. And it really, I, I, I don't know, it was just it was something that, that kind of clicked and really kind of went forward from there.
1: I'll tell you, what, that's a great point to bring up Darren Dalton, because uh, I started off that season on fire. I was hitting 360 after three or four weeks and just killing the ball. I ended up getting this intestinal virus and I was out for like three or four days. I lost like 12 pounds. And when I came back, I just want to get back in the lineup. I came back. I was so weak and I started a bad habit of, of pulling off the ball. And then I started struggling badly. So uh, uh, I couldn't get it back. It was something that was very strange at that point in my career. I couldn't get my feeling back that I had the first month of the season. So they go out and get Dalton at the trade deadline. And he's basically in a platoon with me at first base. So the reporters come up to me like, oh, what do you think about Dalton coming in? I'm like, I was devastated. You know, am I going to get my starting job taken away? And here comes this guy. He's a veteran from the Philadelphia Phillies, and uh, he was on that awesome 93 team, and we played against him, obviously, but didn't know anything about him. And I had every right to be bitter and to be hating this guy, but he ended up being one of my favorite teammates of all time. This guy, you would not believe the prep he had to put in every game just because of what his body was going through. His knees were shot. His shoulders were shot but this guy would get to the ballpark every single day at two o'clock and start his prep work. And he was a gamer, man. He went out on that field every night and gave it everything he had.
0: What I love about the balance of this team too, is that you have the veterans like Dalton. Uh, you have some of the veterans like Bobby Bonilla, who was 34 years old at that time, but then you also have a 20 year old Edgar Renteria. And we know how big of a role he played down the stretch there. And also you have some other young guys that were playing a part, at least at some point in the season, like Mark Katze and all of these young and upcoming players and a balance mm. with the veterans that are experienced even Charles Johnson was 25 years old on that ball club and what did you think of the veteran to youngster balance do you think it helped get more out of the youngsters and the youngsters helped kind of get more out of the veterans was that a big component to that chemistry you talk about because I feel like it could go one way or another uh, where you have a big age gap and a little bit of just a divide or you have exactly what I just said
2: yeah, I mean, I think I think we definitely had some older guys, like you said, some younger guys that were coming up that were had a, a couple years in or a year in the big leagues. And and I think a lot of the younger guys were sitting there watching the Bobby Bows and the Moises and Devos and Eisenreichs, and we saw how those guys went about the game. But on the flip side, you had the older guys who, who were true professionals, guys that wanted to win, weren't out for themselves, that wanted to show the young kids how to play the game, how to go about it, how to really uh, – you know, kind of figure out how to win games. And, and those guys were amazing. I mean, to, to see what, you know, these guys, you know, Jim Eisright coming off the bench, you know, and, and, and have some great at-bats. So I think that showed a lot of the guys that were playing it. Hey, listen, you still got to focus every time, even though it might be once a game or, or four times a game, every bat, every pitch, everything means something.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, you had uh, that group of veterans we had in that team, you know, I was my fifth season, so I'm a fairly new to the league as well. But, um, you know, you have these, there was no, there was no egos. There's no egos. And that was evident in the way that we all got along together because the biggest veteran on the team, Bobby Bo, treated Mark Kotze the same as he would treat me or Rob or anybody. So we all felt like we were family together. We played every night uh, like we were family together. And that's the kind of chemistry that I think is vital to winning teams. And when you look at uh, teams that are successful, I think when you ask the players what it was like in the in the clubhouse, they're all going to say that on teams that won the World Series.
2: I agree. I think, I think chemistry is a huge part of, of winning. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the teams, for me, a lot of the, a lot of the organizations that have come up and won, the Tampa's, the San Francisco's, even the Yankees when they won, what, three or four or five out of those years, it was all those core guys coming up together. Those guys came to the minor leagues. They, they, they struggled together. They came to the buses. They came to all the way up. And all of a sudden, they get the big leagues. And, and they're, they're, they're pulling for each other. And for me, I think chemistry, the clubhouse is a big part of winning with any, any organization.
1: Yeah, you bring up those Yankee teams. From 96 to 01, those was probably the, the best teams I've ever played against. They just knew how – I mean, they had an all-star at every position, yes. But the way they went about their business – they were true professionals. I mean, they were calm and collected. And man, those teams were. I hated going to Yankee Stadium and playing those guys because they were that good. But uh, I enjoyed playing at the same time because that level of baseball was uh, second to none. Yep.
0: You end up taking them down in 03 2, which is even more ridiculous uh, to do that with the 03 team that was even younger than a lot of the players that we saw in this ball club. And uh, we mentioned that the fire sale that followed with this ball club. And and I know that was something that was the beginning of a bit of a stigma around Marlins baseball and that exact financially motivated decision to, to do things like that. There's, the veteran guys on this team, like we mentioned that may not have had that many more years of, of high-end production, like the Bobby Benias, who was 34 years old, like some of the other players you mentioned, Dalton having to tape those knees up every single game. Do you think that this core, if they were kept together, uh, could have won another World Series. I know it's hard to say things like that because it's so hard to get back there. But just in terms of being competitive, getting to the NLCS, let's say, because that's really where you know a good team will get to that area at least every couple of years. Do you think they could have done that? You guys could have done that with that most of that core.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think every year from year to year it's a struggle, um, and I think going in the postseason really kind of puts a <clears throat> some stress on on some of the older guys and even the younger guys. I mean, you look at. You look at the Giants when they did their, you know, three World Series in five years. That that next year they, they didn't quite do what they thought they were going to do. And but I, but with that being said, I, I definitely think there was enough veterans on that team. There was enough leadership on that team, from having Leland, you know, managing doing what he did, to having a veteran bunch of veteran guys that were established that 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 knew what they needed to do to get ready for the following year. And you had a bunch of young guys that were a little more seasoned and had gone through a World Series. I definitely think we had an opportunity to do something
1: great. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, you know, you had Sheffield, who had a very subpar year for Sheffield in 97. Uh, it was a very down year for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the year before was maybe one of the greatest years I've ever seen from a, from a hitter. He had, uh, I think in 96, he had 314 with 41 home runs and 121 RBIs, and he struck out 65 times. And with that violinist swing, I was hitting behind him the whole year. So I, I got to see firsthand what uh, an amazing talent he is. And then the next year, I think he only had like 21 home runs and 70-some RBIs, mm-hmm. which was a huge down year for him. Just think about him going back to a normal year. You got Moises Alou on the other side who had a huge year for us uh, that year in 97. Devon White was still patrolling a, a phenomenal center field. Um, you know, you got a young Edgar Renteria and uh, Craig Council up the middle. I mean – I definitely think. And then you got know, Kevin Brown and Al Leiter anchoring your pitching staff, which uh, I'd put those Charles two Johnson. Guys, uh, And Charles, uh, yeah, in the, You mentioned Charles Johnson, only like 25 years old. I would put our, that team against anybody the next year. And I. it was a shame that we couldn't put it together again and go for another run, but uh, it just wasn't in the cards.
0: The crazy thing about that Sheffield season, by the way, you were within one run RBI or average point with every statistic. It was three fourteen with forty two bombs, one hundred twenty driven in. Which amazing recall, by the way, there, Jeff. But he finished sixth. (laughs) He finished sixth in MVP. Feel trap. (laughs) How how does a guy with those numbers finish sixth? Like I look at the old MVPs from the early two thousands, late nineties, and you know I, I know what that era implies, and we know what kind of offensive output came from that era. But was it really, was 40 just different? We talk about how 100 then was different than 100 now. I know we still see guys hit tons of home runs in, but was 42, 47 home runs not exactly, uh, I I feel like it's not exactly as big of a deal then as it is now for the most part. You had seven guys right here in the top 10 in MVP voting that finished with 40 bombs. Even had Sammy Sosa, who had legitimately 3% of the vote. Who hit forty bombs that season? I mean, how is that possible? Has the game changed that much in that regard? Was offense really that common back then?
2: I think there. I think back then they were professional hitters, and not saying that that's not now. I just think that the pros... You can say to, it. Well, <laughs> We can say that too. I don't like the way. I don't like the way the game's going. But with that being said, we can get into that later. I think. I think those guys now played the game the way it should have been played. Ball goes the other way go the other way you know drive it to the right center gap uh ball in you drive to left center gap or for righties and, and they they did the little things right to get the extra 15 20 25 hits a year um you know nowadays it's all lift and separate and they want home runs and no one wants to go the other way and, and so for me there was a lot of a lot of guys back in that time there were some great hitters and and you know they would you get you'd get those guys 0-2, oh two one two 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 man they were they were still driving the ball, but they weren't trying to yank it and pull it left left field or, or for for a righty. You know, it was it was you know see ball, hit ball, drive it to the gap, and and you know end up on second base. So definitely, was some great hitters back then.
1: Yeah, Jeff, I think the quality of hitter uh, was better back then. They're not tra- they weren't chasing metrics. We had no metrics back then. We had no exit velo. We had no launch angle. We had no. Uh, You know, they had to like guess how far a home run went, you know, they estimated the distance on those things and it wasn't that big a deal. So I think uh, back then guys had to rely more on feel. Hitting was more feel back then than it is now. And uh, you know, when you look at those numbers that guys were putting up, like you said, but also when you look at the flip side, you know, probably average major league fastball back then was 90 and it's almost 94 now. So, you know, they had to contend with uh, four miles an hour less uh, on an average basis per night on velocity. So they could get that barrel around a little bit easier than they do now. So, you know, it's hard to compare eras. It's hard to compare uh, generations or, or even decades because of, I think, the athletes today are so much bigger and they're so much faster. They're stronger. Uh, they're throwing the ball much faster than they used to. They're, they're you know, the power is ridiculous. What we see Uh, nowadays but i just think back then it was just more premium on skill than it was today
0: and the thing that you mentioned with chasing metrics that kind of ties me into what we alluded to earlier which is the chasing of spin rates although the giants are an exception to that a lot of the pitchers that they look at are not necessarily the guys at the top end of spin rates and uh they've had a good they've had a lot of success pursuing guys like that that maybe are overlooked by other ball clubs but for the most part we saw this sticky substance thing become uh really rising to the point that it has because of the fact that everybody is pursuing these spin rates. And obviously back when you were playing, Rob, and I know Jeff and I've talked about this as well, is that players were doing their own little things to to get their advantage, but it was more subtle. And I think you gave players an inch. It was one of those unspoken things. And now they they take a mile and they kept pushing it to see how far they could take it. And it got egregious. And that's exactly where we got to in Major League Baseball. As somebody who pitched uh, up until you know, through the '90s into the early 2000s, and then has now seen where baseball went in regards to the sticky stuff and uh, that big topic that just seems to never go away. Uh, what would you say the distinction is between what was happening then and what you think is happening now, and what you've seen?
2: Well, listen, I, I think back then guys were doing what they needed to do back then. Do I think it was as as much as it is now? Probably not. But with that being said, guys were still using, you know, you had Gaylord Perry using using Vaseline or whatever he did. You had other guys using Pine Tar or whatever they were using to, to, to do what they did. It was a well-known fact that the hitters knew it. And so they just dealt with it. But back then the guys were 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 they were professional hitters. They, 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 they would try to go the other way. Like I talked about earlier, they would try to pull the ball. They they didn't try to do too much. ball. When they had a chance to drive the ball, the fence over the fence, they did. Nowadays, I think with the whole cybermetrics and the numbers and analytics and everything, and everybody wants to, it's, it's lift, separate, pull, a bad angle or, you know, launch angle, all this stuff. I think if you're, if you're a decent pitcher, you're a good pitcher, you have a chance to locate and put the ball where you want to change speeds when guys have a launch angle or whatever, whatever the number is, all you got to do is move it away from that point. And, and, and that's easier said than done. But when you got a guy up there who's a lefty and all he's doing is trying to yank the ball and pull it every single time and get the head of the bat out in front of the plate to hit it to the right field, well, breaking balls outside, slate, you know, sliders outside, changeups outside, they're pulling off that. So for me, I think it's a little bit of, cry babies on both sides as far as the hitters complaining about the sticky stuff because the numbers, there's more strikeouts and hits, but that's kind of the, the, the numbers game. And that's what they're, that's what they want to do. They want to hit home runs. The numbers say hit home runs. Well, the numbers say now you're going to have more strikeouts and hits because guys are looking for one pitch or looking for one thing. And the pitchers are being able to locate, it. you know, as far as the, the pitcher side, listen, we all grew up, the, you know, throwing baseballs as kids the whole thing about, oh, i got to squeeze the ball tighter now because I don't have this stuff. That's a bunch of crap. If you can't go out there and pitch and throw the ball the way you want to without thinking, stuff, you shouldn't be a big league pitcher. And the spin rate, maybe it changed a little bit, maybe it doesn't. But I guarantee that you got a guy like – and I'm not even saying Garrett Cole is one of them, but Garrett Cole, I saw an interview with him and kind of saying that, that they need something. Mm-hmm. I guarantee in college he was not using any tacky stuff or any spin stuff or any you know spider tack or whatever. He was going out and pitching the way he wanted to. Now all of a sudden you get a crutch with a spider tack or whatever's going on and you think that that's what you need to get people out. For me, it's a crutch. I think go out and, and, and quit making excuses. Go out and pitch and get guys out. Same as hitters. you know. Don't, don't make excuses because now all of a sudden the spider tack is, is, is a name in the game now and you guys are striking out more than you're getting hits. Make an adjustment. Go the other way. Start driving the ball the other way. Do something different. I don't know. That's just me.
0: Jeff, I mean, I think he just hit the nail on the head because – I am so happy with what you said about the pitcher side. I I am obviously as a guy that that hit, I didn't pitch that much through high school and stuff. So I I am always going to side a little bit more with the hitters on that one, just because we've seen the strikeout rates go down a little bit, at least Uh, some of these pitchers are able to just really harness it. But from the pitching side, I feel like they were acting like they're using bars of soap to throw from the mound. Like it it can't be that hard to grip. I know it's a bit of a a shock. And I think the upsetting part for the players was like, hey, you should have told us this before. The year, so that we could have gotten acclimated and got back to it and gotten used to it again. But at the same time, you're the one that decided to get used to that crutch, yeah. and that's your problem. And you know, that- I,
2: yeah, great For me, there's only a couple of places you really kind of that the, that you need any kind of substance. I mean, I used a ton of a ton of rosin. That was the only thing I ever used. But Colorado and Arizona is about the only two places where there's no moisture. Your hands are a little slick. The balls can be slick, and, and things can go that way. That would probably be the only place. But for those guys to make the, make the excuse that they, that they needed during the season, that's a crock because all you got to do is go out and throw a bullpen, a couple bullpens, or go out and, and your side works and all that stuff and, and just do do it. And that's the other thing. Do you think those guys are using the sticky stuff during their bullpen sessions? I think they were going out throwing strikes and working on stuff. I guarantee they weren't putting spider tack on their hands or the ball or wherever it's at down on the bullpen because there's there's no gain to it. So it was, it was down there as a work session. So for me – it's just excuses just go out and pitch and go out and play the game and, and, and do what we used to as a kid don't worry about the sticky stuff and don't worry about it go out and make hit locations and change speeds for me i think i think they've gotten away from the, the being a kid and being a guy that grew up playing the game
1: I agree i mean it's 100 you know you, you talk about the crutch uh, aspect of that and they, they think they need it uh, I can't remember who it was, but they blamed their arm injury on not having sticky stuff glass uh, now to be able yeah. to, to grip the ball. And I mean, like you said, Rob, we never had sticky stuff growing up. You, you learn how to throw a baseball uh, with nothing on your fingers. That being said, you know, in our era growing up, coming up through the system, we knew that pitchers would put a little pine tar on the on the back of their glove or the inside of their glove. And they, we knew that we didn't care. You know, we use pine tar to get grip our bat if they need a little extra on their fingers to, you know, when you looked at the slippery stuff, that was more uh, of an issue. When they got the the Vaseline or the, the KY or jelly in the back of the neck or, you know, scuffing it or spit on your fingers and that thing does some serious, serious movement when it gets to the plate. That's when we had more of a problem with it, with being able to get a better grip. I never had an issue with that. The one
0: thing I wanted to talk about too is, is the closer. Cause I feel like we got to a point where the traditional closer was at its peak, which was when you were pitching Rob. And then it went waned a little bit five, six years ago where you had some of the forward thinkers quote unquote, that were saying, Hey, maybe the most important three outs aren't in the ninth inning. And I do think there's some merit to that, right? If your closer is Josh Hader and you've got three, four, five, which are all lefties for whatever reason, a lineup does that. Then maybe you go to Hader in the eighth, but generally speaking, I feel like the last three outs are the hardest three outs. And I want to get that from Jeff's perspective as a hitter in terms of what you're trying to do uh, to scratch across and tie the ball game up. But then also from a pitcher as someone that had to close ball games out, but you've also pitched outside of the ninth inning as well. Do you think it's, it's a lineup dependent or are the final three outs really the hardest to get in the game?
1: Go ahead. Closer. Oh,
2: you know, I don't think they're anything different than the than the middle of the innings, but I do think there's more emphasis on what's going on in that in that inning. I think there, you know it always seemed like majority of the time you're getting the best lefty off the bench. If 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 you're towards the end of the lineup, it's true. Yeah, you, you, you're getting the best lefty off the bench in a certain certain situations, but it seemed like majority of the time it was a one two three guy or or a two three four in the lineup or a four five six, which are all good great hitters. So for me. It's definitely I – think, I think there's a little more challenge to it. I think that – I think when you when, – when the opposing hitters come up in the ninth inning, they know it's their last at-bat. They know it's – the game's on the line. They know what's, what, what the game – every game means something. And I think it's one of those things that – I do think they, the hitters rise to, to that um, situation a little bit more. So I think you got to be a little bit more they're, – they're a little more focused than they are maybe in the fifth inning. Not saying that they don't want to get hit in the fifth or, or whenever sixth, they know that's the last time. They want to be the hero. They want to go out there and be the guy that hits a walk off home run, and everybody's celebrating. Everybody's going crazy. So I think there's a little bit more to that point of going out and getting getting the last three outs. So I think that's I think that's what really kind of changes a little bit. It's more of the adrenaline's there. The hitter's got to be a little more focused because listen, I'm you know going you know one for four as opposed to going two for four in that ninth inning being getting that last hit or getting that double or driving the guy in that makes a game right there for you guys. I mean, that's for me, that's a, there's a little more focus.
1: Yeah. There's a finality to it too. So in the middle innings, uh, you know, you've got room to work with. So uh, if we don't get the job done in the fourth, fifth, sixth, get it done. We still got time to get it done later. So now you go to uh, the end of the game, you're in the ninth inning and it's over after that. So on both sides, he knows he's got to get three outs to close this game out. We know we have to score at least one to tie the game or two or three to win the game. Um, So that's what I think uh, makes it special on both sides. You know, you get those guys that, that, that perform in the ninth inning off closers and you get closers that are able to close out that ninth inning because they know that this is my time and I'm shutting the door on these guys and it's over after I step off this mound. And that's what is interesting
0: as well, because I always hear people say, it's mostly broadcasters, but they'll usually say, hey, a closer came in in the eighth and he wasn't able to get the job done because his adrenaline wasn't going and closers generally struggle in non safe situations. What are your thoughts on that, Rob? Because I've seen it, I've seen it, but it could be a little bit of confirmation bias, right? Every time a closer struggles in a non safe situation, we say, oh, there it is. But we ignore the times where they put up a scoreless inning because it wasn't nailing down the save.
2: Well, I, I definitely think that non-situate, non-safe situations. I know I struggled with because in our job, and I, and I struggled in spring training too, because our job is is an adrenaline-based job. I think that that for us to go out and pitch two, three, four days in a row, or, or four out of five days, or three out of five days, or whatever the case may be, you know, we we may not feel great every day. So, and, and you know, in between those days, you're still getting up and you're still doing stuff. So you're a little beat up. So for us, once we got on the mound, it was all adrenaline-based. And for us to go out there and, and kind of go out and do that type of thing is, is it, it definitely makes a difference. I mean, for me, it was I was I was better if I came in with guys on base in eighth inning and got out of it because my journal was still up. But once you kind of go and sit down and, you, you know, the Dorphins and all your journaling kind of kind of kind of subsides a little bit to go back out, kind of get that adrenaline back out, you need. I need my heart pounding a little bit. And, and, and a lot of times I would go out there and go, okay, I'm just going to get out because I did it before you know, the inning before. Well, by that time you got a guy on second or third base and you're, you're in the, that, Oh shit moment. Like, Oh, now I'm in trouble. And then the adrenaline would kick back in. So for me, it was always kind of one of those adrenaline was real high coming in the eighth inning or the ninth inning. And then, you know, if you had to go back out for another inning, the, the adrenaline kind of changed a little bit. It was hard to get that back up because we are so adrenaline based Uh, you know, position to be able to go out and do what we do.
1: I agree. I thought over the course of my career, the closers that had to come in in the eighth inning did not fare as well uh, as when they only had the night to worry about, because like Rob said, I'm laser focused. I am the closer. My, the ninth inning is mine. So that's how they build their whole uh, mental preparation is around that one inning. So when you're rushed into action in the eighth, or sometimes even sooner, it's like when you're called on to get out so you no, don't normally have to get, uh, that's when sh- the, the, this one stuff changes, especially in your preparation, your mental um, attitude, your adrenaline. And I definitely thought there was a difference when closers came in in the eighth rather than just the ninth. I'm glad you said that because that's one of those things that I
0: feel like you have to ask a player to really know the truth behind that, because it's so hard to be able to see that from the outside. You can't measure adrenaline uh, from what you're seeing, but it seems to be that the closers really do better in those types of situations. I wanted to ask you about the 2000 season that you had and the 98 season, those two seasons stand out beyond belief. Uh, The 2000 season, as we mentioned earlier, fourth in Cy Young voting, you even finished 12th in MVP voting as a closer, which is, absurd in the 2000s oh, he did yeah, yeah. He, he finished 12th
1: Damn. dang <laughs> you're good man see i was in the america i was in the american league back then thank god because i didn't have to face him but uh still dang you're good
0: yeah you want to hear the numbers jeff listen to these numbers so in 2000 he had 41 saves 66 innings 92 punch outs a 0.8 whip and that 1.5 ERA, what was working for you that year beyond everything? Yeah. Everything. Right. Like what, (laughs) what what was happening there? Like you must've went out there almost every game and you're like, all right, it's over. Like that, that's where you were at there.
2: Well, I I think you get to to a good, good, uh, you know, kind of a role you kind of get in, you know, you kind of get your mechanics a little bit and you kind of get in your, you get a great, uh, just believing in yourself and trusting in it. And I think that was one of those years when, You'd go out there and, and your mechanics felt felt great. You felt like you could get people out. Um, it was never easy. I mean, it was never a deal that you'd go out there and, and you know, throw the ball out there and, and it would be a one, two, three every night. There were some struggles. There was definitely some times you had to go out and work your butt off and, and get out of jams and all that stuff. But it's just one of those things where the stars lined up and you go out there and you're you feel good, your arms feeling good all year. You got Mechanically, you're right. That year, every year, it seemed like you, you're kind of tinkering a little bit with mechanics. As I, I assume, Niner did the same thing. We all did it, you know. And, and it was one of those things where, you know, you get on a good roll. You start off the first month of the season, and and you're you're just going the right direction. It just kind of snowballs. It just kind of keeps going. It keeps going. It keeps going. And I think that was one of those years. You just everything worked out right, you know. So,
0: Niner, your best season, ninety four or 95. You could pick either one, but in terms of MVP finishes, 18th and 94. So not far behind, but you you had two instances where you placed and then 95, you were 22nd, Uh, but
1: you still got some room, man. I was like top 10 in RBIs that year. That was a good year for me, and I I couldn't even break the top 20s. That's brutal. (laughs) There's there's a lot of
0: talent on that board above, and, I mean, again, it was just crazy. Oh, so you're Uh, saying I deserve to be in the 22nd? No, I'm just saying it's some tough competition. Some tough competition. I get it. I get it. So, Rob, you also, you know, had those special years uh, and and baseball is like an up and down type of sport where some years you are going to really have that dominant season. And then, like you said, you get out of whack a little bit certain years, as Jeff mentioned, he had the intestinal virus, which really threw him off uh, the next year. How do you really manage that? And I want to hear Jeff's side of it, too, because you mentioned, Jeff, how you really were going through some struggles, but you didn't really mention how you got out of it. So I want to hear that. But for you too, Rob, like you had your ups and downs, you had some really, really incredible seasons. And then sometimes it's hard to replicate that. Yeah. How do you stay on course? Uh, and, and how do you trust what you have and try to get back to where you are? How do you know that you're not losing something? Or uh, do you ever get worried that you might not rediscover it? Any, any of those things? Uh, yeah, I mean you definitely there's always
2: a little bit of doubt in your mind. At least it was for mine for for me at least. I think you go out there with the ability of of knowing you can get people out, and knowing knowing what you need to do. And for me it always seemed like and I and I was just trying to think about when you talked about that, that that for me it was every every even year I had a pretty good year. But going back, as you said that, you know, trying to think about the years before '97, you know, I, I kind of struggled a little bit that year, and, and that was, you know, even though we won the World Series, it, I, had, I had a bunch of blown saves. '98 was a great year. '99, uh, you know, wasn't a great year, or I, I should say, playoff-wise. I should say wins went to the playoffs that year, and that one worked out. But then '99, you know, we didn't go to the playoffs. It was it was the end of the year. 2000 had a good year, um, went to the playoffs, um, so it seemed like maybe the extra little bit of playoffs, maybe that stuff, not making excuses. Maybe it was just me health wise. Maybe it was just something that, that didn't click that year. I don't know, but it, it definitely felt like every other year was, was, was a better year than the year before. And uh, so I, I can't explain it. Maybe playoffs, maybe we went a little farther in, in, in things that year. I don't know, but uh, it's definitely adjustment. And if you don't make adjustments you get, you get swallowed up in this game. And, and Jeff would tell you the same thing. You know, you, you face it, you face guys enough. Um, you see them enough and you know how they're going to pitch And Just like Jeff said, slider, 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 you know, but you know, if we were to face each other enough times, I guarantee he would have figured out that, Hey, don't, don't swing at that slider. Don't do this or that. So you got to make adjustments and, and, and seems like maybe those years, there was just better adjustments made. I don't know.
1: Yeah. And it's just, it, it's a mental, it's all mental because obviously you've got the talent to be there. Uh, you've done it numerous times, but you still see the greatest hitters have slumps. And you think, why? Why is that guy having a slump? It's because baseball is such a fine motor skill. You know, if get up on the mound, you've you pitched arm, you get up on that mound. And I mean, that plate is, it's tiny. It's very small to be able to throw on 18 inches on either side of that and control it. Uh, just a little fraction of an inch off on your release point that's going over the middle and it's getting hammered. Uh, Base hits. You know, if I'm a half inch below a ball or a half inch above a ball, it could be a pop fly or a ground out. So you're always tinkering, you're always trying to make adjustments. And sometimes we take it a little too far and we get further and further away from what made us successful. Being simple, being down early with my front foot, because that was a big problem for me, is my front foot got down late. And that would spin into all kinds of different other mechanical issues that would put me into a slump. And I'm trying to change all the wrong things, even though I'm trying to help myself. I'm trying to change the wrong things to get me back on track when all I need to do is wipe, kind of wipe the chalkboard off and start back at square one and yeah. trust that. And when you have trust in your plan, trust in your uh, ability, that's the guys that are successful the longest. They, they've trusted their plan. They've trust their, their, um, their makeup. They trust their their, uh, pregame rituals. They trust all these things to where it becomes almost robotic and they have faith in them. And that's the guys that are most successful for the longest. Hey Niner, how many times did
2: you, did you ever, you know, and for me, it was a lot of a spring training was, you know, you'd go into spring training, feeling great, swinging it, throwing it strong. You felt like, you know, you, you were, you're right where you need to be. You could start the season off. Then all of a sudden you get in, for me, I'd get into spring training and, the standing around the shagging, the throwing game, you know, throwing games, the throwing bullpens would kind of catch up to you, you know, maybe halfway through spring training. Then all of a sudden, you know, you struggle a couple of times and you want to clean everything up. You want to make adjustments. You want to change something. I got my hands higher. I got to do this or do that. As opposed to just, just taking that day to saying, God, I just didn't quite feel right. Don't change much, but it, it's everything. The core of what we need to be was right. But it seemed like there was always times that I was always try to like change something instead of just saying, listen, I, I, it was a long day staying around, a long day throwing BP, long day shagging. During the season, kind of the same thing. We always try to tinker instead of just saying it was just a bad game. You know, maybe our bodies are tied. We flew that night or whatever the case may be. But for me, I know I try to do that more than not sometimes. What about you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, sometimes, you know, you have a bad game. Uh, and then that bad game turns into two bad games. Now you're 0 for 8. With a few strikeouts, you're like, Oh, now I gotta turn this around. And then it's like a little bit of panic sets in, and then you get some tension, and then now it's an 0 for 12. You got three games you haven't gotten a hit. It's like now you're you're pulling your hair out because you don't know what to think, what to go to next, and then you change a little something else, and so now you're 0 for 16, and it's four games now, and now you're like in straight panic mode. All right, do I change my whole swing? Do I do with the leg kick? Do I put my hands over my head? It's literally what goes through a hitter's mind is that when the, the at-bats stack up without hits. It's the the little man inside starts cranking like, oh my God, what are we going to do here to get out of this? When what well, Rob said, it's like, okay, I had two bad games or I had a bad game or I had two bad games. I'm trusting what got me here. I'm trusting what I was before those bad games started and I'll get right back to it if I just stick to it. Um, and that's why guys free fall. Sometimes I start changing everything. And then you know, they are, I think that's what the the classic 4A player is. You know, you got the guy in AAA that's got all the confidence because it's about development down there, and he's able to just perform, not really think about much, cranks hits, hits 320, then he gets called up, and now everything matters so much. And then, oh, God, I can't go two games without a hit because they're going to send me back down. So that's when you start thinking about everything outside the lines and that little man gets cranking in there. And that's why, you know, they say it's really hard to get to the big leagues, but it's tougher to stay.
0: Yep. 100%. And, and I think with the closer role, especially, I, I always compare it a little bit to the mental side of it being like a kicker because I think there's a lot of players that may be capable of, of closing ball games out, but the mental aspect of it, having the short memory of I blew a save yesterday, I got to come back tomorrow and close it out because you're probably going to get the ball again if you're winning. It's kind of the same thing with a kicker. I think there's a lot of people in this world capable of kicking a 50 yard field goal. I think it's a lot harder to close a ball game out at the major league level, but on that side of things, it's just how hard it is to have that short memory to turn around and and close the ball game out after you just had a bad outing. I think that's what's uh, just as impressive to me as, as the, terminator of a pitch that you had is just being able to go out there and maintain that 1.5 ERA after giving up a blown save or whatever it may be. Uh, Before we wrap up, I just wanted to have a couple more questions in terms of what you saw in your playing days. I always love to ask this. I've asked Jeff this a million times, but who was the most impressive hitter on your team or that you had to face uh, in your time playing that really stood out to you? And you're like, man, he just makes this game look easier, man. How do I get this guy out uh, on either side?
2: Well, Jeff Conant was best bester I ever played with. So for me, that was that was my boy Niner, Hunt Niner.
1: Look at you, look at you. Thanks for now, the problem. You liar. You know,
2: God, it's hard because every year somebody somebody was doing something different. Like we talked about, every year is different. Uh, you know, I, I played with some some guys that were just tremendous hitters. I mean, the Sheffield's and 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 Conines and 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 uh, Moises Alou and all these guys. You know, we're, we're just phenomenal, phenomenal hitters that, that any given year, any given day that were as good as anybody, you know, Barry Bonds, me seeing him play on a day in day out basis, whether he had help or not, you know, was one of those things. But with that being said, he was still one of the greatest hitters. I, I, I saw it during my time. I saw him hit his 400, his 500 to his 600 and his 700 home run in that course of that time. Was there help? Yeah, you know, that's not for me to say, but we all think there was something going on. So, But with that being said, he was still a great hitter. And, um, you know, so there was guys like that. You know, as far as the other side, guys I faced, there was a ton of them. But the one guy that would would beat me up pretty good was Chipper Jones. You know, he was a guy that, like we talked about earlier, whatever the situation the game was going was – what he did, you know, if I threw him a slider down in, he would he would yank it to right field. You know, if I threw him a fastball, he would go the other way. You know, if I threw him <clears throat> fastball, you know, up high, you know, middle, he would go up the middle. You know, and then there would be times where he would take pitches. Um, you know, and, and then if it was a one-run game, you know, he'd sit there and look look the, to drive the ball to the park. So for me, he was one of the one of the hardest guys I had to face. Um I did get him out the last time I faced him, which that's my claim to fame against him. but I, he, for me, he was tough. he He was a tough guy to face consistently and and because he could do it all.
0: I love the Chipper re- reference because I've every pitcher i've I've had the opportunity to talk to a couple big leaguers that face Chipper, and I've had that name come up multiple times where pitchers have said I'd execute my plan perfectly. And I'd still be turning around and watching him, you know, jog into second base. And those are the hitters that I think for Chipper, he's obviously a Hall of Famer, but I still think he's a bit underrated because he was one of my favorite players to watch of all time, even though he was on a rival team with the Braves. I thought what he did was always so special. And then today, I love asking this too. I know for Jeff, Mike Trout is the guy that he really enjoys watching and appreciates. Is there anybody today offensively or on the mound that you're like, that guy reminds me of some of the standout players in the nineties or the two thousands, or he goes about it the right way, or he's just different from anything I've seen.
2: You know, I agree. I, I think Trout is the best player in the game. I love watching him. I love the way he plays the game. I love the way he runs everything out. I love the way he, he plays defense. He doesn't give up, you know, any at bats. He goes out there and whether they're winning or losing, he's out there trying to make that day better for him and the team, the fans, everything. Um, I think Otani, you know, you, you got to be able to watch that guy and see what he's doing. It, it, it's pretty amazing to be able to go out and throw 96, 97, 98 and be consistent as he is and doing what he's doing and flip around in that same game and go out to keep focused of hitting home runs and driving balls in. And, and you know, he does as a kid. I mean, he's smiling and joking and laughing. And for me, that's a fresh a breath air in the game now that, that he's having fun with it. He's not showing people up. He's not going out. and you know, flipping bats or, or doing what he's doing. He just got playing the game as a kid and enjoying it. But for me, you know, offhand, those two are the other, for me, the best two guys out there.
0: No doubt. And I know, I mean, Jeff, we've talked about what Shohei's doing and it's just absurd. And we were saying that we could have one of the wildest AL MVP finishes, potentially Vlad Guerrero Jr. What he's doing too. He is more reminiscent of, the guys you were talking about in that era of having more of an approach. He's striking out less than 20% of the time, yet he's on pace for 50-plus home runs. I'm hoping that those guys, the Juan Sotos, we're seeing more players like that that sometimes you just have to go through a cycle as a sport. I think they got too far down the rabbit hole with the strikeouts. And I think we're starting to see some of those guys break through that are more well-rounded. Baseball's best prospect, Wander Franco, was just known for never striking out. He he only struck out three times in a game. I believe it was three times. So th- there's guys like that that you can really hope will change the tide and get back to where we were because I think it's better for baseball. Uh, and, and I think it's a great spot for baseball to have more guys like that Last thing is the Giants. I mean, I know that you've been tied with the Giants for a while. You finished your career there. You got your 300th save there. uh, And they obviously have had their incredible run in the past, as we mentioned, with the three-world series. Some of the guys that were on those teams are still there. They're not young, and they're doing great. The Buster Poseys. Brandon Crawford at 34 years old as a shortstop is having the best year of his career. This entire Giants team is just clicking on all cylinders, yet – they don't really have that pure, pure superstar. I guess you could say the way Posey's hitting right now and Crawford, they're in that, in that realm. But what is it about this giants team that is allowing them to be one of the best teams in baseball? I mean, they were a three run shot from Will Smith in the ninth inning away from taking the series from the Dodgers. Again, Uh, what stands out to you about this giants team and with the world series teams you've been on in the past, is there any commonality there?
2: You know, for me, I, th- I think it's just some veteran guys mixed in with some younger guys, and, and uh, you know, there is a, a lot more older guys on that team, and, and and you know, they're they're going out and playing the way they 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 have to play to win a win a World Series and win it win and get to the playoffs, and, and you know, uh, you know, Buster's having a great year, and, and and Crawford's having a great year, and all these guys are going out and having career years, which is which is awesome. I still think the starting pitching has kind of been a big key to those guys. Um them going out and, and, and doing what they need to do to keep in games. And the hitters have, have been coming up strong. It seems like every night somebody else is doing something different. <clears throat> I don't know if their averages on a consistent basis are as high as what, what, what they're doing shows besides the posies and the Crawfords and all that stuff. But I think it's somebody different every night. I think it starts with the starting pitching and the bullpen guys and the hitters are, are, are going out there and doing something different every night. Somebody's somebody's being the hero and that's what it takes.
1: Yeah, that's what I kind of uh, was digging into their statistics a little bit with the team. And they don't have that standout like guy that is going to be the MVP candidate or anything like that. You know, they don't have a 30 year home run guy right now with hitting 350. And um, But if you look, they're second in the Major League Baseball in home runs right now and in a very unfriendly home run ballpark. Uh, but it reminds me a lot of the 2003 team where you're getting contributions up and down the entire lineup. Just like Rob said, everyone, every night, someone's coming up and and getting the job done. So when you play with confidence like that as a team, like we did in 2003, we just knew if I knew that I didn't get my job done, the guy behind me was going to get it done. So that creates that bond, not only on the field, but in the clubhouse. And I guarantee that is a tight knit clubhouse right now, that they get along great they got a ton of confidence uh they've got six guys with 10 plus home runs so they've spread out all those homers over most of the uh roster and that's when you get guys uh knocking one out of the ballpark in the seven eight hole that win games and that's how they're doing it they're just getting contributions from everybody rob can they do it this year
2: I think so. I think if they could get, you know, I think if they get the right guy in the clubhouse that they can, they can go out and get somebody that that fits and gels. And like we talked about their chemistry, somebody that's not going to come in there and want to, the whole show to himself. If they can go out and add a piece or two and really try to add a little bit more depth or, or a starter and have a guy that, that, you know, whoever's not quite doing it quite as well, you know, have somebody come in there. I think that I definitely think they can do it. They probably need maybe a little more bulk and a little more pitching help and all that stuff. But you know, it's a long ways to go, but they definitely have they best, they definitely look pretty good right now.
0: Well, this was so much fun. And I, I can hear about the 97 team and hear about the late 90s and early 2000s of baseball all day because, you know, that's my favorite times to look back on, my favorite number. So I'm really excited to be able to have had this episode with you. Looking forward to putting it out. And also, I'm going to be following up to find out how to grip the Terminator because I want to break that <laughs> out in my men's league and see how it goes. I, me and Griffin. <laughs> Jeff's son, I, if you don't know, he's leading the freaking minor leagues in home runs. And we were I joking know. that we we're going to do some, some at bats after the season. I'll get on the mound and throw 78. Uh, but if I can get the Terminator in the mix, maybe I can All get right. one swing and miss on Griff.
2: Oh, guarantee. Well, listen, it's a long ways to go, but we can definitely do it.
1: All right. You You'll just be you know, from that, me that there. stuff that you used to put on the ball to make it go down like that. The what? You know, that, that stuff you used to put on that, that would make the ball go down like that. You know, that stuff. Nope. It wasn't sticky. I know that. No, and it wasn't slick either. <laughs> it was
0: all strength, all yeah. oh, just brute strength. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for hopping on, and uh, we'll have to do it again sometime soon. Maybe when the Giants are making a run into the postseason, and we'll get your thoughts there. But so much fun talking to you, Jeff. Thank you for bringing Rob on ninety-seven team. We we got to see who else we get from that seven ninety-seven team. But a lot there's, of a, there's a, really a reason was he was the
1: first guest. There's yeah. a reason he was the first guest. Well, well I, I think everybody just family. found out why. So it was a blast. I
2: appreciate it. Thanks for having me on guys.